Welcome to the Virtual Staff Room, a podcast made for teachers, by teachers, and all with a dash of educational technology thrown in. We're joining you today from our Technology for Learning studios on Gadigal land in Sydney and pay respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people past, present and emerging and those joining us and listening to us today. My name is Yvette Pashoglian and today I'm joined by my colleagues Joachim Cohen and Amy Phillips and we're meeting someone very inspirational in the STEM world. Corey Tutt has been the name on our lips, and you might know his incredible organisation, Deadly Science. Corey is a Camilleroy man from the Illawarra region of New South Wales and is an entrepreneur, author, and the founder of Deadly Science, an initiative providing STEM resources to remote schools across Australia. Corey's incredible book, The First Scientists, has won incredible acclaim and plenty of awards across the publishing and education spectra. And most importantly, he has really changed the landscape of how we can use First Nations science as a starting point to explore STEM in the classroom. It's also a fabulous exploration of First Nations technology. We featured Corey in our T4L Kids magazine, and we are so thrilled to have you here in person today, Corey. We know that there are plenty of teachers who will be listening and who will also be thrilled. Welcome to the virtual staff room. Uh, thank you for having me, and it's um, it's a great virtual staff room. Plenty of food. Um, it's it's yeah, it's, it's probably better than <laughs> what's on offer out there. So great to have you here. We're going to kick off and just ask you, how was Deadly Science born? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, uh, like. I kind of started my career as a zookeeper. So I left school at 16 and, you know, I guess for any young people listening and, and of course any teachers, um, you know, not every road is a direct road. Sometimes you have to hit a few potholes and, and do a few U-turns to get to where you're going. But the most important thing is that, you know, the key ingredient to anyone that has any kind of success is probably being a good person first um, is is probably the, the best way to go about life and, um, I was working at Shoalhaven Zoo, which is um, down in Nara and down in Ewan country. And I was picking up snakes and feeding crocodiles and, um, fighting monkeys, you know, that kind of job. And, um, you know, one thing led to another and, and unfortunately, you know, I had a, had a personal tragedy that, that forced me to sort of fall out of love of the animal industry. And I'd grown up like just adoring animals and science and, um, I really liked Harry Butler, which a lot of you are probably too young to know who that is, but um, he was a herpetologist from the 70s. And, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I didn't get access to the new books or, you know, I was relying on books from the 70s and 80s. Um, and, you know, I ended up shearing alpacas for a little bit. Um, and, you know, that might seem like a really manual job, but you actually have to think of a lot of STEM things for that. You know, you have to make sure your equipment is up to date and clean. And, you know, if you're um, doing what I was doing and injecting alpacas, you have to learn how to safely do injections of worming um, medicine and and grinding their teeth as well, because their teeth unfortunately grow um, too long. Um, there's their nails, their toenails as well. If you don't cut them, they get infections and they die. Um, so there's all these things you've got to consider. Um, you've got to consider um, how you shear the animals. Like, you know, you got you can't shear black animals and then white animals because the black fleece gets mixed with the white fleece and it becomes problematic. So, you know, although shearing um, seems like a, a very manual job, it's actually 
you know, it's a very hard job because you also have to keep um, count of all how many animals this year because if you don't keep count of that, then you can't charge the person the right amount. So I learned all those skills um, and then I came and um, worked at the RSPCA and and then I worked at the Animal Welfare League where I met my wife. She picked me up from a pound. Um, <laughs> and I, I'd end up going and doing an apprenticeship at the Garvin Institute where I became an animal technician and started working in labs. And And I kind of always been this person that um, I get I get bored quite easily. And it's probably a bit of ADHD, to be honest, but I always really like to challenge myself and, and do other things. So working in a the lab, there's so many different things you can learn, especially when you haven't, you know, gone to university the traditional way, you haven't learned those skills. Um, so I, I learned a lot of the skills like taking the DNA of lab rodents, for example, taking a little bit of their ear and um, putting it through a machine and then putting data into a computer, um, spinning blood, you know, tattooing mice as well, which is really hard because they've got tiny tails. Um, and I realised at one point that, you know, I'd learned everything that, I, I could learn possibly in that job, but there was something missing in my life. And I think part of that was, you know, my family from Walgett, I grew up in Dapdo. You know, I had a, I had a really great Aboriginal grandfather who was a Gamilaroi man. Um, and shout out to any Walfords listening. Um, but for me, it was, you know, he was always big on, you know, read, just read. Like if you can read, eventually you write the books. Um, so I learned how to read, um, you know, and it was very, very hard for me to learn how to read and, and get an education. But I, you know, I just really wanted to make him proud and, and make my mum and my family proud. And I did that. But if I could give that to other kids um, whilst I was working at the University of Sydney, I just wanted to yarn with them and, and talk to them about science and talk to them what I was doing um, for a career. And it became... I went and volunteered with another charity and they stopped doing this, but it was really challenging at the time because, um, you know, I'm a pretty engaging person, especially when I'm passionate about STEM and science. And I probably get that from my zookeeping background from, you know, um, holding snakes and telling people, oh, God, it's a tiger snake, get excited about it. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was it was really challenging then because all those kids would just love talking about science down in Redfern and it was about 2018 and I'd do it every Friday. And then the challenge was, you know, I was working in a lab, um, working with a boss that probably wasn't, you know, as accepting of First Nations people as what probably what they should have been. But, you know, I had to do the trade-off. I had to work later to have that time off to work with those kids, but I loved doing it. And I just, uh, the name Deadly Science um, came from this young Aboriginal fella from Redfern. He said to me, he goes, this is deadly and this is science. Um, and he really wanted to work at Tronga Zoo. And I was like that, I thought about that name a lot and I thought, you know what, that's a good name to call this. So we called it that. And then um, it kind of progressed from there. I found a school um, in the middle of the NT that had as little as 15 books and it's a library. And I know all the teachers, you know, sort of listening to this would know that, you know, some schools don't have the resources that they deserve um, and that, you know, that's a systematic problem of society for not, you know, not treating everyone equally. And um, I just decided to do something about it. So I went to Dimmicks and we have a word, um, which is a bit of a slang word and it means kind of wombat, um, where we say womba and you're being a bit crazy, being a bit of wombat. 
and I'm a little bit crazy and I dropped, I went to a Dimmix um, down Broadway um, one day and I dropped a thousand dollars at Dimmix and walked out with too many books and I just started um, posting them off to schools and and obviously that became too expensive and my wife was like at the time, you know, I think you've got a gambling habit you've got no money. <laughs> um, and for that, like it became, became much more than, than just the books because it just, it became a bit of a ritual for a couple of years. You know, I was, I would, I'd work in the lab all day, get up at five, work in the lab, finish at two, pack some books in the office, use my lunch break to, you know, email all these schools um, and ask them what they needed. And then I would go and post those books off and then I'd go work at the Hand Rock Pet Hotel at Duffy's Forest and, and work some more. Um, and then I'd come home about eight o'clock and then repeat. Um, and I did it for such a long time that it became, I started putting it on Twitter after a while and it, it kind of exploded. And then I got a logo and then that logo turned into shirts and I got a GoFundMe page because um, Professor Marianne Large and Alice Motion from the University of Sydney said, you know, they could probably see I was working myself into the ground and, and to be honest, some things don't change. Um, and they said, you should get a GoFundMe page. And I, I came up with this idea, if you donated $30 or more, you'd get a Deadly Science T-shirt. And it was just simply a black T-shirt with this logo on it. And before I knew it... Um, you know, I'd been nominated for the Young Australian of the Year. And and to be honest, um, you know, coming from a single kind of parent household where, like, you know, I had a stepfather, but he kind of wasn't really, like, part of my life. It was, um, it was really challenging because I thought the first email I got from Australian of the Year was a joke um, and I ignored it. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and before I knew it, it was, um, you know, you're nominated for Young Australian of the Year and, you know, how does a young person prepare for a life where you've suddenly got a camera in your face and, and someone's celebrating you and, you know, when you don't get that acknowledgement. Like I didn't really win awards at school. I won them for football, um, but that was because I beat a bunch of kids up and scored tries, you know, um, and it was quite a big thing for me as an adult because you feel like this is imposter syndrome because you're like, and then ever since that day, um, my life changed forever. Like I, I've been able to do some incredible things and meet some incredible people and, and also employ some incredible people that, um, are now part of this thing that like I created, but they also, I also consider those people family. Like I talk to all my staff, you know, most days and I always ask them how their families are going because I just, I really am grateful for, um, kind of everything that we've sort of built. Amazing story. I'm blown away. I don't even know how many ways we could go down that, but I know there's some great advice for the alpaca farmer amongst us in a vet. She'll take a little bit away there. But Corey, tell us why it's important we learn about first scientists. Uh, it's really it's really important, especially um, for young people and, and teachers as well, because, you know, there's one thing, one common denominator that we all have, um, especially, you know, listening to this podcast and, and this is, just a wild assumption. So um, if it's not for you, I apologise. But, um, you know, the image of a scientist, we normally see your Thomas Edison's, your Albert Einstein's. And don't be wrong, they're great scientists as part of history, but, you know, we don't learn about David Nippon. Um, we don't learn about, you know, Indigenous people or people of colour or, and especially women as well that, you know, have been practising STEM for thousands and thousands of years. 
And for me, the important, the most important thing is that, you know, we, we delete the word can't from my vocabulary and we change it to you can, because, you know, if, if I can be an example to people listening, um, and if I'm not your flavor, then that's cool. Um, but you know, I am a kid from Dapdo who left school at 16, who now, you know, participates in research, who leads it, um, who's an author. And I've never received an Indigenous scholarship for that. I've never had a leg up. I've, I've had to work for it. And, you know, for me, um, you know, I, I wanted to create a book and, you know, a program that just science is not defined by the lab coat. It's not defined by the person wearing it. Science is all around us and that the fact that in, in First Nations people we've had first we've had forensic science, you know, which no one's really touched on. Um, we've had astronomy, which is is pretty widely publicised and, and I guess has a, you know, astronomy is such a, you know, popular form of science. But, you know, with my book, I tried to touch on most forms of science that probably haven't been touched on um, nearly enough. And, and I guess for me, the best thing about writing a book was it came out during lockdown and I was, um, I had so many copies in my house, but I there was children in this country that didn't have access to internet that, you know, it was widely assumed that everyone at home has a safe place to learn and, and be part of school. So um, social media was really brilliant because um, I wasn't doing anything with my time, just like a lot of people sitting at home. And, and I was able to, you know, put it out on social media to any families and schools. Do you, do you want some books? Because I can sign them and I'll write little messages in them. And, you know, I sent books to the Torres Strait, I sent books to Dayton, I sent books to Walgett, I sent um, to Gaduga. And, you know, you might not hear anything, but then, um, you know, a year or two later, I get a message from an Aboriginal woman who's like, thank you so much for giving my son a copy of First Scientist. He absolutely adores you. And that book he has not put down in two years. Um, and for me, that's a very special thing. And like, yes, I've won a lot of accolades and and I win a lot of awards and I'm honoured in so many ways, but that, that there's the best prize of all because, um, you know, without saying really egotistical, that little kid reminds me of myself when I was young and maybe in a, in a weird way I've, I write the books that I wish that I had as a, young, a proud Aboriginal man um, when I was young. Oh, wow, Corey. I think you've you've really changed the narrative in the way that schools view um, the past and and also celebrate you know different inventors and inventions in such an absolutely engaging way. And I, I guess teachers and students they've learned so much from reading your book. Do do you have a favourite invention that's inside there? Well, I mean, the hardest the the hardest thing for me is like it's hard to choose because like it's like choosing a favourite student. You can't. There's so many. Oh, like, no, you can have a favourite. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Charlie from Robinson River was one that really, um, really hit me. And um, there's been there's been a number um, of kids over the years that have really impacted me personally and, um, you know, have given me a real driving force of why I do what I do. And I think the biggest thing for me um, with the book and I guess celebrating and to, to properly answer your question is that, you know, 
I really like Davey and I Pond's invention of the shearing handpiece because without an electric handpiece, shearing alpacas would be very difficult. Um, I'd also have a very terrible haircut if it wasn't for <laughs> the rotating blades. Um, but then, you know, where I'm from in Gimilaro country, um, we have a complex river system and fish traps, you know, of what fed our families and, and ancestors and elders for thousands of years. Um, and they're, they're designed to, you know, there's a, like when I wrote the um, Acknowledgement of Country in the first part of the book, I was sitting on a plane and I was watching Australia just burn um, and it really affected me. And I came up with this, I just kept thinking this saying and it, and it must have been, you know, that maybe one of my ancestors telepathically coming back and, and letting me know these words. But I just, I kept thinking like, you know, if you care for country, the country will care for you. And it was, you just stuck in my head and, you know, you'll see in the, fir- the front cover of First Scientist, the orange amber with the leaves coming down. And I wrote it on a napkin and my wife was sitting next to me and she's like, what are you writing? I'm like, I'm writing an acknowledgement of country. And she's like having a bit of a laugh at me at the time. Um, but it was so true. And when we look at the first fish traps, we look at the way that, you know, um, Aboriginal people manage the land through, you know, um, intelligent management of fire um, and burning the land appropriately. Everything was designed to care for country so that we could have animals, we could have plants, we could have a viable landscape for future generations. Um, And I think that that's one of my favourite inventions because it's so true and it's so needed today, so relevant. Thanks. I'm, I want to read it out loud, but I feel like I'm going to cry because I'm the big sook, but I just get so moved by those kinds of things, but beautiful messages. Now you have a new book coming out and that highlights about 70 different First Nations exceptional role models across a huge range of areas. How do you feel about being a role model to our kids and how can we continue to support and promote other First Nations role models across a range of careers and pathways? It's it's an interesting one because I, you know, I don't I don't think you really I don't think there's a form where you go and sign up to be a role model, um, and I never intended for like I'm not perfect, um, and I never intended to, you know, be someone that people would follow and um, take advice from or, or you know look up to, but you know with great power comes great responsibility, and and for me. The best part of my day is, you know, sometimes when I'm at a writers' festival, you know, parents will drive their kids hours and hours and hours just to get a book signed or get a photo. Um, and I'm just really humbled by that because it's such a, it's a big deal for me. And, and I guess, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the person that that doesn't enjoy that because it, it is really enjoyable. And, and like, you know, when you, when you get the messages and you get the support, um, it's, it does, it does make me a bit emotional because it's, um, you know, I don't, I think being a role model is, is about, you know, it's not about the things you do. It's, it's not about the lessons that have been learned. It's not about the mistakes you make. It's about being just a good person and being humble about and being proud, um, just being proud of who you are. And I've, it's taken me a long time to be proud of who I am because I, I've, I've grown up in a very difficult place and I'm more proud of the fact that 
you know, I can impact people in this way that something that I do can bring them so much joy that, you know, if, um, you know, what I do in my books and the things that I do can impact someone so much that it can be the difference between them having a good day and a great day. Mm. And um, if I can do that every single day, um, regardless of what's going on in my world or in my life, then I, it's, it's a mission accomplished. And, um, and doing that for the power of STEM just makes it so much better because um, science is deadly and I love, I love being a nerd. Um, I love like learning about different animals. I love learning about different technologies. Um, and I really, and any young people, teachers out there, I, I just love the fact that, you know, that's something that I created that, you know, um, never in my wildest dreams did I think that I'd be able to go on TV or, uh, you know, have books or, you know, have a following and, and things like that. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit surreal for me. Um, I've never got used to it and I don't think I ever want to get used to it. Um, I'd rather just be humble and, and enjoy just making people proud and, and smile. And I think that that's the best part of deadly science and, and what I do. Mm-hmm. Well, strap in because you are a role model, not only to the kids, because, but also to us as educators, because your book has sparked so many conversations within our team. And, you know, this is, this is what we do, but we've, we've gone down different pathways since we've started really exploring your book. So there, you know, you're having a lasting impact, um, not only to the students, but also to all those teachers out there. Um, leads me to my next question, which is how important is it for all the students and educators to understand Indigenous science in particular and the inventions and how how is that going to shape STEM education into the future and what is that going to look like for a young stu- Australian student or Aboriginal Australian student out there? How are they going to interpret this? There's no, there's no secret that, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are underrepresented in STEM. Um, there's also no, it's not, it's, it's also not a mystery to why. Um, and, and part of that is, is you can't be what you can't see. Very cliche um, words. And I think I've used it a bit too much. So I'm like trying to get away from that, but it's, it's so important for young teachers to be supported because when a young teacher leaves university or, and sometimes they're at university, they're asked to embed Indigenous perspectives in the curriculum. And often the people who are asking to do that aren't really connected in with Indigenous people or First Nations people. So we're putting a lot of young, a lot of pressure on young people to learn about things they never had the opportunity to learn about. And, you know, as hard as it is, you know, culture has been stolen from First Nations children's in this country and a byproduct of that is that we are putting incredible amounts of stress on our education system um, because we know it's not perfect and we're trying to to build the puzzle pieces and the Lego blocks to build a better relationship and have true reconciliation um, with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country. And, you know, some schools do it really well, some don't, but that's just life. And I think that you know, teaching First Nations perspectives in STEM, you know, sometimes the lessons of the past can be the the answers for the future. And 
a lot of what we do, especially with first scientists, is, you know, you'll notice on the cover that the mob are in lab coats because the images we see of the scientists are generally of old white men. Um, and there's not there's nothing wrong with being an old white men, man, but when you just see that as an image and you, um, you link that to being a scientist. So one of the exercises I do with kids is that I ask them, to give me a description of a scientist and they always give me, if I was doing a deposit, uh, sorry, if I was doing like a sketch on what that looks like, I'd be just drawing Albert Einstein all the time. Um, so for me, it's teaching about Aboriginal people being the first scientists this land, not only is to help strengthen the relationship from teacher to student, but also broaden the horizons of the individual so that when the time comes and they have children, they can actually educate their kids on what is right and what is wrong and the true history of STEM in this country. And I think that, yes, it is a very popular space, but we've got no, we've got hardly any resources in this space. And, you know, the, the hope for me when I wrote First Scientists is that someone is going to pick up my book and say, I can do a better book than this. And I really want them to pick it up and do that because we need more resources and resources help our teachers. Um, so, you know, I'm very grateful that we've got a lot of great teachers. Um, I love looking at the My Gifted Teacher um, Instagram page. Um, they're big supporters of me and, and Deadly Science and the ideas that teachers have now, especially young teachers, um, you know, where they're spending their own money in classrooms to, to do themed events for NAIDOC Week and and celebrating First Nations culture. I wish that I'd had that when I was younger. Um, when I was young, we didn't even have acknowledgement of country. We didn't have welcome to country at school. You know, if you were an Indigenous kid, you got bundled into a bus and sent to Wollongong University. Um, and that was the Indigenous program. But now it's so immersive and, and we should be proud of how far we've come. And I think sometimes we get trapped in the negative of how far we need to go. Need to go. Um, and I think that teachers are doing the best they can to embed these knowledges in the curriculum. And it's it's really important that, you know, as Aboriginal people in the education space, as tiring as it is, you know, we should not forget the role we play in trying to help create resources to help get more respect for our people, especially in the STEM space. Oh, Corey, I just don't think you know how much impact your book's made. It, uh, every time I read it and I show it to somebody, the wow is just how we feel. I think everyone feels goosebumps as they start to read it. Um, thank you is all I can say. And I, I think going on from that theme, how do we really inspire the young Indigenous and First Nations innovators of tomorrow? Well, it's, it's funny you say that about the book because when I wrote it, I remember just bawling my eyes out um, when I sent it off to the publisher because I was like, I was telling my wife, my career's over. I'm going to be so, like, it's going to, this book is going to bomb and everyone's just going to attack me online and it's going to be horrible. And then, because, you know, the hardest thing, and, and I feel this now with my new book, and I, I think I'll always feel this, is that when you create something and you, and I, I don't think you can really call an author an artist, but I kind of like, I feel like an artist a little bit. Um, you create something and it's like, you know, I, I imagine it's similar to someone that paints a painting, you know, and the first time you see it, the first time it's in a Word document and you write it and, you know, you get people to look over it and they go, wow, this is awesome. 
And then the second stage is you get the PDF with all the, you work with the artists and you create all the concepts and you, you do it and you've, you've got an idea of what it looks like in your head. And, and it kind of like looks like this book, unfortunately, <laughs> like this is what, it, what I wanted it to look like. So it just, it was what I envisioned it to look like. So um, seeing it in the flesh and then the day you get the first copy, it comes to your mailbox and you open it up and it's, you know, this, this document, like, which is just a book is in your hands. And you're like, this is, this has come out of my brain, um, which is a bit strange. And then you, there's the nervous weight of like, who's going to buy the first book. And then it comes out and then someone tags you on Instagram. It's like, wow, I've got this book. It's really awesome. And then you say what you just said there, but in between all that, there's this anxiety of like, you know, how is it going to go? How is the people going to react to this? Because it's this book that's like, you know, I've identified that we've needed um, and then I've decided to just break that concept. Um, and I guess for how we inspire young people, it's it's really simple. We There's two ingredients we need in this life and, and this life is very, very short and and that's passion and purpose. And a lot of young people have passion and we kind of beat it out of them. Um, we beat it out of them at primary school when they get older, because we say, you know, stop playing with cars and taking them apart, go and do your maths. We beat it out of them in about year 10 or year nine or year eight or year nine. And when you're starting to do work experience for the first time and they say, you know, you should really focus on getting a trade or becoming a hairdresser, which are all noble careers, but that person might want to be a doctor or they might want to be a vet. They might want to be a crazy zookeeper that leaves and goes to Western Australia as a child. Um, and we, we actually discourage our kids, unfortunately, in some way. And, and this is, you know, this is changing. Um, but previously we discouraged our kids from being able to create and be able to think. And, you know, we should be encouraging our children to, if they want to, um, start businesses and start and be a bit more entrepreneurial and, and being able to push the narrative, um, you know, to be brutally honest with you, I, I probably didn't really know how to read or write until I was, you know, in my twenties properly, you know, and I've had to teach myself that. So it's possible. And I think, you know, to quote my cousin, Kylie Captain, dream big and imagine what if. And I think that it's such a, um, it's such a beautiful tagline. And, you know, I, if there's anything that I can share with my story with you is that, I'm a Gamilaroi man who left school at 16. He has, he comes from, you know, a pretty broken part of Australia in, you know, at the time Dapto was pretty rough. Um, you know, Walgut's pretty rough sometimes. And if I can come out through the other side of that, write books, work with the Formula One team, McLaren, and get my logo on the side of the McLaren car, then anyone can do it. And the only difference between me and you is that at some point I stopped listening to what other people told me that I could be. And I started believing in myself and I wish I could tell you the time that that happened, but I think I was just, I think I was just sick of just being told that I'm, I was kind of not going to achieve anything. And, but the difference now for me and you is that I'm here to tell you that you can do it. Not that you have to do it, but you can. And that's the most important message.
Oh, it's such a great message for our kids and our teachers as well. And I've resonated with a lot that you've spoken about today. I came into the Department of Ed as an identified Aboriginal teacher. And there were two things I noticed straight away when I got into teaching. And there were two areas that teachers were scared of teaching. It was technology and STEM and Aboriginal education and various reasons, unknowns and, and things like that. But if you have a room of teachers in front of you, what's your best piece of advice you can give them? Well, they say don't work with children or animals and I decided to do both <laughs> um, and I love it and I wouldn't change it for the world. And um, I would say to teachers is that, you know, it's really hard to get bogged. It's really easy to get bogged down in the nitty gritty and the politics of teaching. Um, but teachers are like scientists and I'll tell you why. A scientist in a lab that is, you know, looking for a cure for cancer or is researching, you know, crystal methamphetamine or, or mental health or, you know, maybe they're trying to save the bilweed from going extinct or a weird obscure frog that no one knows about is in the Peruvian jungle and it's only 50 of them left and, and to be honest, most people wouldn't care if it just went extinct but they're desperately trying to save this frog. Every single scientist, whether... It's blue, white, purple, yellow, doesn't matter. They're all working to make tomorrow's better for something or someone else, uh, improve some part of wor the world in some way. And I think of teachers the same way. Um, you don't go into teaching because you don't, you, you might go into teaching and go, oh, that's a job I can do. But you don't stay in for teaching to be that person. You stay in teaching because these young minds, these young minds that make you feel every emotion known to man, you know, frustration, anger, excitement, laughter, love, you know, um, you're trying to mould them into the people that can, you know, function in society, get back to society and, and achieve their dreams. And I would say to the um, teachers out there that don't get lost in your why because there's a reason why you're doing what you're doing. And for the most part, I think most teachers are just really good people that are trying to do stuff for other people. And I think that the empathy and compassion for that shouldn't be lost. Amazing. There'll be so many teachers out there that really listen to that message. A final question. What's next for Deadly Science and for you personally? I, I can't stress enough that, you know, Deadly Science is, it's more than just me now. Um, and it has always been more than just me. It's been a community. It's been, you know, all the all the mob and all the communities that I've worked with, they've they've always felt like they're part of us. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to, you know, we, we don't get an, a hell of a lot of funding or donations, but we've been able to, I always say to our staff, like we're like a welterweight fighting Muhammad Ali sometimes. And we pack a few punches, um, and it's, it's really important that, you know, people realise with Deadly Science that there is, you know, eight, soon to be nine people working with me um, to try and, you know, work with over 800 schools and communities, providing things like Lego books, you know, deadly learner sessions, connecting schools with scientists, working on country to develop new STEM kits that include cultural knowledge in them, um, building this thing that, you know, hopefully can support all of you listening. Um, and if it 
And if you are in a, a an op- if you do have the opportunity to help out, like join us and help us grow this thing because it's it's growing. Um, before my very eyes, it's growing, and um, I'm just really grateful for all the staff. You know, people that that volunteer their time for us, that that donate the schools, the, the students that. You know, they love deadly science. You know, sometimes you see videos of them chanting deadly science and and I feel like it's a it's a bit surreal for me because it's it's a long way from the, the lab full of, you know, little mice chattering away and and I'm trying to pack these books and, and resources and um yeah, and I guess what's next for deadly science is that we really wanna we really wanna help all kids everywhere. I mean, we're do, we're gonna be doing some stuff with juvenile justice centers. You know, tomorrow I'm going to Captain Starlight Children's Ward and I'm going to spend some time with some kids that are doing it a bit tough. Um, and, you know, I really just want to grow deadly science so that, you know, I'm no longer the face of it, that we have multiple faces of Indigenous people running this charity that that can take some of these opportunities and just fly. And I um, and for me, what's next for me is a really tough question. Um, I've, I've started working on this new book, which is... um. A reptile book, actually, um, and it's and again, it's kind of similar to First Scientist. It's the, it's probably the book that I always dreamed of having as a kid. But um, you know, I'm, I'm now starting to develop the concept and the ideas, and that and that's going through all the nations and actually renaming the animals what they originally were called. So, you know, there's animals such as um, you know, the bearded dragons that have names. Um, you know, crocodiles, which in the Torres Strait they're called crocodile. Um, you know, these are all animals that have names that have existed um, for thousands and thousands of years. They have stories. Um, and I'm trying to put that all together and, and create something that is hopefully going to inspire a new generation of herpetologists and and scientists, but also just bring joy to, joy to people that like animals. Um, and, you know, for me, it's the other thing for me is that I... I realise that, you know, the platform I've created and the opportunities I've created, it's probably time to, you know, hopefully with some more funding and some, some more support um, to actually step aside a bit and allow some other young Indigenous people that probably didn't get that opportunity to step up and rise above and, and take some of those opportunities so Deadly Science can be more than just the guy from DAPTO that created it. Um, and it means that I've just got to, I'll probably have to focus on other areas and write a few more books, but that's kind of what's next. Corey, we really look forward to watching the next chapter unfold for you. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today and joining us here on Technology for Learning Home Turf. We've come to the end of this episode, although desperately we don't want it to end. If you have a chance, pick up the book, check out Deadly Science. Thank you for joining us, Corey. Thanks for having me. If your school has a story to tell, we would love to hear from you. Thank you so much to not only the guests joining us today and those behind the scenes at Deadly Science. We'd also like to thank the production team and Anha for all the behind the scenes work here to bring this podcast to you. Thanks for listening. And just a little note, please be aware that all views expressed by us podcast presenters are our own personal opinions and not representative of the New South Wales Department of Education. Discussions aren't endorsements of third-party products, services or events. We look forward to chatting with you next time.